Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Oksanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. I am Ibrahim Oksoya. It's great to have you here all on the show today. I've got a fantastic guest lined up for the program today. My guest today is Kevin Doran, who is the MD of AJ Bell Investments. Ke- Kevin, welcome to Retirementals. Abraham, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on the call, Kevin. Let- let's dive right in. You are today... Uh, Managing Director of AJ Bell Investments, and we're going to get into all of that. But mm-hmm. give us a little bit of a background. Tell us the background story. How did you get started in in the investment industry? Uh, pure fluke, Abraham. If you, if you just said, to, you know, so here I'm at one of my forty five ish now. Uh, if you just wow, said, you're to, a baby, Monty, yeah. the youngest CEO, youngest managing director. Of- if you just said to me 25 years ago, Abe, that there were people on the planet with so much money that someone else looks after their money for them, I just would not have believed you. It's not, it's not the background I come from. Um, so I, I had no idea that the world of asset management existed. You know, I, I tangentially heard of things like pensions, but knew nothing of asset management whatsoever. So when I graduated from uni, I did maths and physics at university. I went off into the world with all my socialist beliefs um, and, <laughs> and, and went off to become a maths teacher. So I was a maths teacher for a short period of time. Quickly realized that math, well, no, not maths, but teaching wasn't for me. And apologies, I don't know what your, your language uh, requirements are on the podcast. But That's I, all right, it's all adults, it's all grown ups. Good, right? good. I, I, I thought it would be. I kind of just, I, I spend less than a year teaching in schools. And if you've spent any time or you spent enough time around teachers, you know exactly what I'm about to say, which is the, the most miserable gang of bastards <laughs> you've ever had the misfortune of spending time with. Uh, and so I looked around the staff room one day and thought, this isn't for me. Uh, all I knew was whatever I was going to spend the rest of my life doing, it had to have numbers involved. And one of the teachers was into stocks and shares. He had, remember the old estimates directory? It was like the right. Argos catalog yes. of, of stocks and shares. Uh, all, all I saw there was a book that was full of numbers. And so that was my initial kind of attraction to this world. Over the Easter holidays, I wrote to every stockbroken firm in the UK. And by, during the summer, I started working for what was then Henry Cook Lumsden. Wow. They were subsequently taken over by Brown Shipley. And I became part of the KBL group uh, as a result of that. So pure fluke, how I came into this industry. Started as a desk assistant, and about seven years later, I was CIO of Brown Shipping. Wow, that's incredible. That's that's a fantastic journey from, what was the name of your street in, in, in Liverpool? It, Dryden Street. <laughs> all, 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 of, all of the places I grew up in, all of the streets were named after poets. So it's probably my only exposure to classical poetry in my entire life. Incredible stuff. So, so CIO of um, Brown Shipley, how old were you then? 20s? So I was the youngest CIO in the country. I was 27. Wow. 
that's just incredible, incredible. So I, I know a little bit about this story because you told me it. Um, and then you went off to, to somewhere in Europe in, in yeah. private banking? Yeah, so subsequently, as a result of Brown Shipley, I then went to the parent group of Brown Shipley, which is uh, KBL, it's now called Quintech Group, but it was right. KBL at the time. So I went into KBL as head of research and strategy for the investment portfolios and, and ran the research team for a period of time. Uh, interestingly, my I went around Europe around 2014, 15 and 16, telling everyone in Europe that it was inevitable that Europe was coming closer together. <laughs> and, and therefore we should all get onto the same research platform and work together as a European group. Uh, and therefore, on the 24th of June, 2016, I didn't think my position was tenable as the guy from the UK who'd been telling everyone for the previous two years that Europe was inevitably coming closer together. Uh, so I quit. I quit on the... I actually quit before David Cameron. Right. So I, I quit uh, by the time David Cameron had quit and was put, in, put on gardening leave for a year, which was fantastic. You know, so I got paid for a year pension pay for the year, a bit of a bonus. And with the bonus, I went and bought a boat. Uh, wow. I hastened to add it, it was a very small boat. It was a 30 foot uh, single-handed boat. And I spent about eight months living on the boat. Uh, in Italy is probably the wrong expression, more alongside Italy. So I sailed <laughs> down from Genoa to Sicily, up through Sardinia and Corsica, and basically just bummed about in the Bay of Naples for a bit of time. And it was during that period that I got thinking about asset management in the future. Asset management in the 21st century is probably the best way to describe it. Mm. And it was when I came back to the UK with those ideas, that was the gestation of what we now do at Asia Bell Investments. So, so tell me that story. Tell us that story. So you, you came back to the UK. I, I'm assuming that you, you've known and developed but, but at that point and you had a conversation or he had a conversation with you about going into to, to the asset management business. What, what was that? What, what was the vision um, for, for the asset management business? Yes, yeah, so, so the, the vision was how to do asset management in the 21st century. Uh, and I think the first and foremost of that is, particularly post-financial crisis, the returns on a balanced portfolio from this point forth are more likely to be in the 5% region annualized, as opposed to the 8 9% annualized returns that the industry come to know and love in the previous 30 or 40 years. And as a consequence of that, the industry has grown a cost structure, which is commensurate with a return of eight, 9% from a balanced portfolio. That's indefensible going forward. You, know, you can't be charging total, you know, total fees, 2% plus for asset management in a world where your portfolio is gonna give you a 5% return. And so it was, how can you build an asset management function, which can be done at exceptionally low cost, and the real, kind of the real catalyst for that is, and trust me, it was an emotional journey. You've spent, you know, you spend 20 years of your life becoming a professional in your industry and CFA and IMC and all those qualifications that we all know and love. And then you have to acknowledge that what you do is largely commoditized. Right, right. And as a consequence of that, you need to run an asset management business as though you're running a commodities business. And so when I came back to the UK, it was asset management is largely commoditized. And therefore, if you're going to be successful in asset management, you need to be at the lowest point on the cost curve. 
And that's about stripping out some of the nonsense that we know comes with our industry, stripping that out, chucking it out and taking the costs out of that and giving it back to customers. And the, the two things that we do at AJ Bell, where I think like we've stripped out some of the big costs, you know, I'm sure you probably will speak to other asset managers on your podcast. Ask any asset manager what their two biggest costs are. The single biggest cost is the research team. Mm. And the second biggest cost is your distribution network. Distribution, yeah. And so when you look at your research team, there's like two, let's call it two stages for, for ease of, of conversation. You've got your big picture strategic and tactical asset allocation stuff. And then you've got your implementation stuff going on underneath. And most asset management businesses I know spend most of their time down here and most of their money down here. We got rid of it. We do not do final mile research. And so having run a team, you know, I was responsible for about 50 analysts around Europe. They're all, you know, master's degrees, PhDs, industry experience, great for telling stories mm. of absolute zero value <laughs> to you in terms of delivering investment returns. So great for storytelling, and there's nothing wrong with that, but of no use to you whatsoever for delivering client returns. So we got rid of the final mile research, and we said we'll only build multi-asset solutions, so portfolios in a box, if you want to call them that. Uh, so, and then on the distributions, and this is why you know, it works at AJBL Investments as part of the AJBL Group. If you went and speak to any asset management business, the single most valuable tool they have in the distribution team is contacts with the financial advice community. You know, most funds in the UK are sold through the financial advice community. And therefore, they've had to build the infrastructure that keeps them in touch with financial advisors. Well, AJ Bell has 8,000 financial advisors registered on the platform and about 5,500 advisors who log onto the platform every single day and as a consequence of that, we've got a team of around 26 people who speak to financial advisors every single day from a distribution of platform perspective. What I'm able to do is, as manager and director of the, of the asset management business, I can plug into that distribution network. But for me, plugging into that, it's a marginal cost. We pay, you know, we'll pay a contribution to the distribution team but it's a marginal cost. I don't have, have any fixed costs. And so by getting rid of the final mile research and having distribution as a marginal cost, I've gotten rid of the two biggest kind of bits of infrastructure you need to run an asset management business. And we take the cost savings from that and deliver it back to customers in the form of lower prices. And that's why we can do AMCs of 15 basis points. But we can do it, and people ought to know that it's a sustainable business model. You know, here we are with you know a bit over a billion quid in assets under management, and we're already profitable. That's that's incredible. So so this is I find this quite fascinating. So so you you're delivering, and and we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit. So you're you're delivering the um you know the um you know the discretionary model portfolio service. And of course, the multi-asset fund. Mm -hmm. um, so, so your cost as manager is fifteen basis points, you know. And then, of course, there is the underlying, um, you know, funds that that are used within within the portfolio, which again is low cost. So, I, I think you summed that up well. You've taken, um, you know, Mr. Bell's um, low cost 
idea in the, in the platform sector and and you've used that to to build the asset management side of things so 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 let me just clarify this that so the the one one billion um, of asset that you've just crossed on the investment management side of things that's in the fund as well as the mps that is that yeah, correct so, so that's also as an asset management business right right cool cool so so i guess one question for you then is you know, we, we keep saying that, you know, investment management is, is commoditized, it's a commodity. The only people who seem to have not recognized this are the investment management themselves. What is it that is said? You know, how, how do you get a man or woman to understand um, something upon which his career depends on not understanding? Yeah. But but I, we we fundamentally agree with that. So so my, my my point is we say it's commoditized. Yet if you look at the discretionary MPS um, side of things, um, advisors are still paying you know thirty basis points, twice what you you guys mm -hmm. charge. Um, I'll say three times mine, but let, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know um, this for, is the BBC. You're not allowed to discretionary MPS. And then when you go into the multi-asset strategy, bar, bar a few exceptions, Vanguard uh, and a few other, uh, you know, you guys, um, people are still paying as much as 1%, mm -hmm. maybe even more, you know, for, for a multi-asset um, portfolio. But my question is, why do you think, especially in the MPS side of things, a, why is the cost base so high and why do advisors continue to pay for these things? Uh, I'll, I'll leave advisors to answer for themselves on this <laughs> question. Um, but what I, what I would say is, and, I, and I, hopefully I can bring a bit of insight to this, having come from a private banking DFM world at Brown Shipley, you know, coming from that world, of course, now think of it, you're sat in... A, a DFM business and you've two routes to the market. So you've your investment management solution, which you will surround with financial planning and you will sell that directly to your end customers who contract with you directly. Right. Alternatively, you take your investment solution, you plug it into someone else's financial planning solution and then you contract with, with their clients. Most discretionary fund managers their heritage comes from private banking and stockbroking. You know, so take most DFMs in the UK. The single biggest asset is, you know, they're at least 100 years old and, and invariably more than 200 years old. Yes. That's how they get the clients. You know, the, I've been on all these pictures. The single biggest thing you bring is 200 years worth of heritage. Yes, yes. Because, because that brings comfort and trust. Uh, for, for for the end client, but because you've come to multi, you know, because you've come to MPS via that journey, you're still in this belief that the stock selection, asset allocation kind of implementation bit is the most valuable part of the jigsaw, and we know it's not. Mm. We know it's not because we're slightly more enlightened, but. We know it's not because we go and speak to clients. And as a consequence of that, if you've got two routes to market with your investment management solution, a lot of DFMs will see the financial planning as 
a mechanism by which to distribute their investment management solution. And therefore, when it comes to pricing it, they don't want to create a, an artificial cost advantage to the financial planner who's charging maybe 7,500 basis points for ongoing advice. When their investment management solution is plugged into an infrastructure where the whole solution costs maybe 150 basis points. And so from a price differential point of view, you have to keep the costs that you supply that service to a financial advisor sufficiently high so that you don't lose all of your clients and they go right. into financial advice. It's, it's, it's really, really fascinating, you know, and I think it's different than the way you know the, the way we we think about this within 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 base portfolio our, our, our business is we think of what, just like you guys i was reading st some stuff about what, what you were, you were talking about which is we say on the website we say the investment management is a commodity right um and the financial planning is where the real value for the client lies 100%. and so therefore it, it, it makes absolute sense to me that two-thirds of the cost is sitting within the financial side, side financial planning side of things um and and only one third in the product by that i mean the platform yeah. and indeed and, and indeed the the asset management you know which 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 is is opposite to what the traditional um you know dfm would do but it's it's fascinating to hear from you that they're bringing in what is sort of all thinking into into new world. But let's let's move on, right? Let's move on to talk to us today in terms of how you you your setup. I was reading some stuff just in preparation for this, and I saw that you guys essentially are making a commitment to keep uh, you know the product side of things, so the investment and the platform under 50 basis point. Um, so so talk, to, talk to us about how that works mm -hmm. in, in, on the MPS side of things, and then of course on the funds as well. Yeah, I, I, maybe pick up on what we've just talked about there. You know, so the 15 basis points that we charge for asset management, back to the commoditization piece, the single most viable thing I bring for the 15 basis points is I have discretionary permissions, and most financial advisors in the UK have advisory permissions. And we know through experience, particularly once you've been running model portfolios for a number of years, and therefore you've cultivated a number of vintages of your model portfolios. Yeah. We, we know that running, advisory, running model portfolios on an advisory basis is, and again, apologies for my language, an absolute bully. And so the single most important thing I bring as a discretionary fund manager is I have discretion permissions and I can remove the two-way communication required in order for you to make a change to a client portfolio. Single biggest thing I bring. Okay, so when we go into what our proposition is, we've said we'll 21st century asset, asset management business. Our mission statement is we build simple, transparent, low-cost investment solutions. And our commitments to advisors are, we give you a commitment on choice. You know the client better than we could possibly know the client. And so it's not for me as an asset manager to project onto you whether you should be actively managed, whether you should be passively managed, whether it should be a blend of the two. 
it's not for me to decide whether it should be managed in an MPS or a fund solution. They're all decisions that you ought to make. And my job as an asset manager is to furnish you with those choices. Our second commitment is on cost. So no matter what product you take from us, you pay us 15 basis points. I shouldn't be charging you more to run active portfolios as opposed to a passive portfolio because we don't do the final mile research. So there's, you know, the research process for us is we, we research the fund managers. So no reason to charge any more for that. And the last one is on communication. It's not our money. It's not even your money, it's your client's money, but you represent the client. And our view is you should know exactly what's going on in your client's portfolio. And more importantly, why it's going on in your client portfolio. I find that, you know, back to the circle, back to the 21st century asset management stuff, I find that a, abomination and amazing that in the 21st century, in 2021, you can go into an asset manager's website and you're still looking at the fact sheet from December. Mm. on the 2nd of March. Mm. That, that, that's just a dereliction of duty, if you ask me. That, that's, that, that, that point is really interesting because also part of this, my thinking around this is one reason why discretionary MPS model in particular are, are overly expensive for what is essentially, um, you know, a piece of um, IP, i.e. asset allocation and, and a bunch of funds. And as you said, you know, the ability to rebalance those things on a, on a, on, on a discretionary basis, that, that's not what 30 basis points, it's not what 20 even, you know. And I think one of the reasons why, um, you know, the cost continues to, to stay this high is that, you know, these asset managers don't have the technology to deliver, you know, communication in a way that is timely and efficient, and of course, they deliver the proposition um, in a way that is timely and efficient to the advisor. Um, and so they don't have the tech, and you know, lack of tech means that you know there is somebody down in the basement floor, um, you know, chasing their tails to get. Um, you know, communication packaged out and, and sent to the advisor, uh, where where you could actually do this. Um, you know, one way we've we've tried to do this in our proposition is to build a control center where all of that information mm -hmm. is pulling from API and is delivered to the advisor on demand. So, yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, it's probably not the most expensive part of what you do, but you're right. You know. It, the wonderful thing about asset management is it's a very scalable business. Mm, mm. You know, running a hundred million versus running a billion is essentially the same job. You know, it you will pick up a couple of bells and whistles along the way on that journey, but it's essentially the same job. I think the, the you know the, the other piece of the jigsaw though is you know as we talked about before the price differential between you delivering that product and allowing someone else. To, to, to deliver the product but the other one is the burn and platform issue yes. which is you know if you're managing a, a click a number out of thin air five billion pounds and mps solutions at 30 basis points are you really going to torch half of the revenue that comes from that <laughs> transition from 30 to 15 basis points yes yes now a word from our sponsor Nikki Heaton Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, 
discretionary model portfolio manager. Nikki, typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, if you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Beautifolio's view on fees is that they have a real impact on client outcomes that needs attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to, to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business. And their cost bases have been rising because of regulation. And the, the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services, in, in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and, and ultimately makes it not possible for them to, to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial. Um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. Thank you very much, Nikki. One question that, that keeps coming up, though, um, you know, or debates, an ongoing debate in the, in the, in the industry is the, is the difference between, um, you know, discretionary MPS operating on uh, advisor as client or agent as client and and reliance on others basis so so two different ones uh, options can, can you explain the difference and you know tell us a little bit about where you stand in that in that debate yeah so i'll try and quickly summarize the difference between the two agents and clients your you you, the financial advisor, are the clients and therefore we'll treat you as a professional client and you're, you represent the client to us. Reliance on others, you're, you're the person at the fulcrum of the relationship, but ultimately the, the contractual relationship is between us as an asset manager and your end client and you're the apex in, in, in that solution. We, we offer both. And, and it comes back to the choice thing. We're, we're actually working on some, on this at the moment. We want to offer reliance on other, others as an optional upgrade. And we'll frame it as an optional upgrade because I genuinely do believe it is an upgrade to you as an advisor. It makes your life easier. It reduces the risks within your practice. But I accept if you're an advisor, you know, the most coveted relationship you have is the relationship you have with your client. And therefore, particularly in a world where, you know, some of the NPS providers are, as we've talked about before, offering financial plan and services themselves, mm. you might be a little reluctant to give up your client relationship to someone who is potentially in competition with you. 
So I understand kind of why an advisor might be a little bit reticent to switch a client on a reliance on others model. But this is the really important thing. If you're an advisor and you've got a client who signed up on a reliance on others model, in the event that the asset manager does something wrong with the client's portfolio, under agents as client, that complaint comes to you and potentially sticks to you. Under reliance on others, that complaint jumps over you, doesn't sit on your complaints register as a complaint against the asset manager. And subsequently, if it's upheld by you know, a genuine mistake or, or a false uh, conclusion, ultimately that the asset manager is the person who's settling that claim. So I genuinely believe that reliance on others is an optional upgrade, but I don't think we as an asset management business, go back to what I said before about choice, we're here to offer people choice for their clients and for their business practices. If you want to contract with us on an agent as client basis, we're perfectly happy with that. If you're willing to get the client to sign AN or the piece of paper, because it is another contractual relationship, we are working on having that available as an optional upgrade so that you can upgrade on a client-by-client -client basis or across your entire book from agents as clients to reliance on others' model. It's it's fascinating to me actually. I, I you know, and my my stance on this is is not too. Uh, I don't know. It's actually you know a bit a bit different than yours, which is to say, well, it, on under the agents uh, as 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 client model, you're right. The advisor has the contract uh, contractual relationship with the with the asset manager, they can fire and hire the asset manager, which is a great place to be as an advisor, to be able to, mm -hmm. you know, wield that, that level of control and power over the relationship of the client. And frankly, the, the client doesn't know or doesn't have a, a, a big relationship with the, with the, with the asset manager. I can understand um, instances where, um, you know, people say things along the lines of, well, if the client has a complaint, well, they can't go directly to the, to the asset manager. Well, that, that makes sense to me. They can go directly to the advisor and, you know, God forbid, if the advisor fundamentally disagrees with the client about, you know, while, while there is a need for a complaint, then the client complains um, you know, complaints about the advisor. But why will an advisor do that, right? If you are, if you're in a position where the client says, this is, I don't think this is wrong. If the advisor who clearly has more information, more knowledge, more awareness to the, to the client genuinely believes that this is a potential complaint that can stick because they know that if they don't take it forward, then the client will, will complain against them, then surely all the necessary incentives are there for the client, sorry, for the advisor, the agent, to pick the complaint up against the asset manager or against the investment manager. So I never understand, and I don't agree with this level of thinking, which says, well, the advisor is going to stand aloof, right? He's going to say, um, you know, we don't agree with this complaint. It's not the right complaint. But actually, because you have a direct contractual agreement with the, 
with the asset manager, you go off and complain about them. I mean, where, where, where is this coming from? I think what you've demonstrated there, Abe, is it's not clear cut which model is best. <laughs> One thing I would say there, though, is let's take it. Let's take a real example from the last decade. Let's suppose within your MPS there's a UCIS exposure, so UCIS right. exposure. Right. And now that's a decision that the investment managers made. Yeah. And you know, we'll put aside the rights and wrongs, but let's assume that we conclude it was not the right thing to do for the end client. Yeah. The client complains against the uses exposure, you know, life settlements or whatever it was, has a legitimate claim, but loses out on the claim because under agents' clients, the advisor is professional and therefore a uses exposure in an advisor's portfolio would have been perfectly okay. Yeah. No, I this is brilliant, uh, Kelvin. I, I really am grateful to you for bringing that up. And I don't say that often. So thank you. <laughs> you are absolutely right. This rule is designed for scenarios where people are putting, you know, what is it, the word, um, weapon of mass destruction in their portfolio. What's it got to do with me? I've got flipping Vanguard funds and dimensional <laughs> funds and I, you know, plain vanilla portfolio. But you're absolutely right that that rule is useful where, you know, people have got nonsense in their portfolio, which I, in which I, to which I say, make sure you haven't got none, you know, you haven't got things that blow up in your portfolio. Yeah, but, 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 but we know, Abe, you know through, again, through experience that in order to justify the fees that, that people, some people charge, they try to make the portfolios more complicated. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like, also, yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, if I were an advisor choosing um, an MPS solution, I want to make sure, I think it's a regulatory obligation as part of your due diligence, really, to make sure that that portfolio is being designed with a retail investor in mind, right? You couldn't, you know, you couldn't choose something that's designed for professional investors and that has all this, you know, complicated stuff in there uh, and recommend it to, to, to retail investment investors. But, but anyway, let's, let's move on a little bit away from, from this. So, um, so, so MPS providers been, They've been lining up to scrap VAD, right? And, and of course, <laughs> you guys have done that. AJ Bell have, have done the same. I understand the good news in this, but of course, it's my nature to ask the difficult question. How has the all of the industry got this horribly, horribly wrong, charging clients in the first place for this? And, and now they're not going to refund it, of course, because presumably, um, you know, the money is washed out in the old VAT system and maybe paid to the HMRC. And good luck, even if you could claim the money back, um, figuring out who to refund it to. I mean, how has the industry got this completely wrong? Are you sitting comfortably? Yeah. <laughs> then I'll begin. <laughs> okay, so... I, I, I think it's a it's a perfectly legitimate question to ask. By the way, um, how have we got it wrong? I'd contest whether we got it wrong. If, if you ever seen that, you ever seen that uh, psychological experiment where the adult goes into a room 
speaks to the child, leaves a couple of cakes on the table, leaves the, leaves the room and says, oh, and don't eat the cakes. <laughs> and so whilst the temptation is to take the cakes, and, and you know, all the, all the tests show that basically most kids take the cakes, there was an instruction telling you not to take the cake, cakes, even though there was nothing to stop you taking the cakes. Right, so here's, and I'm got, in, in fairness, I'm not going to profess that, you know, I've got this VAT financial manual at my fingertips. You did give me a heads up that this question was coming, and I wanted to give a, a decent answer on this. So for, for the aficionados in your audience, and I know you will have some, we're going to go to VATFIN5800 <laughs> and VATFIN5100. It's not quite as good as Glenn Miller's Pennsylvania 65,000, but these are the two bits. So VATFIN 5800 was an actual ruling. So it was Deutsche Bank versus ECJ, where Deutsche Bank were doing something that looks very much like a model portfolio. We're not charging VAT. And the HMRC said, that is definitely VATable. So you've got something that looks, smells, and quacks like a like an MPS service, and the HMRC have said that is definitely VATable. Okay, then you've got VAT fifty one hundred, and VAT fifty one hundred comes out of European law, where the Europeans introduced this special investment funds category, and then the UK's version of that is an ACF, so that's an authorized contractual fund. ACF is essentially something that looks and smells and feels like a collective investment vehicle, despite the fact that it has no legal basis whatsoever. Now, if you can prove that it's an ACF, so it's definitely a pooled investment vehicle, despite the fact that there's no vehicle, you know, it's, it's basically, it's a jug of water with no jug. Yeah. So all the water is held together, but there's no, discernible kind of boundary to it. If you can prove it's an ACF, that's non-bastable because the law in VAT 5100 is fiscal neutrality between a collective investment vehicle and an authorized contractual fund. And so now think of it from a corporate point of view. If you're running a MPS and you've got a piece of legislation from HMRC which says something that looks like your MPS is definitely vatable. And then there's this nebulous thing, which includes the words authorized. So you're thinking, okay, well, where do I get my authorization? <laughs> there is an if you've got this nebulous thing and you're going and asking for authorization and HMRC keep telling you there's enough information in the public domain for you to make a decision yourself, the law of finance departments says we'll play this safe Mm. and so you know in fairness it wasn't until tatton came out in in the summer of last year with an actual you know they came out with the golden fleece didn't they they came out and paraded their golden fleece and said we have an actual decision from hmrc yeah where our mps is has been deemed to be an authorized contractual fund and subsequently as you know a number of you know, DFMs like ourselves have gone off to HMRC and HMRC have continued to say there's enough information <laughs> in, in, 
So they won't give you a ruling. Tatnav got a ruling, and, and I would argue, therefore, have a competitive advantage. But they won't give you a ruling. And so we've self-determined, based on information in the public domain, that, therefore, our MPS is an authorised contractual fund and, therefore, is non-battable. Apologies for the long answer, but hopefully it was a, hopefully it was a decent. No, answer. actually, I like I like long answers. Well, as as long as they are as as in in your case, um, you know, relevant, detailed, and and specific. So so thank you for that. I mean, I I think the, the way I understand this is that um, bec if you think about the journey that a client takes to end up in a model portfolio is first of all, they buy an exempt, a VAT exempt service, which is a platform, right? Mm -hmm. And then they buy another uh, maybe uh, exempt service, which is a tax wrapper. Um, it's pretty difficult to then put a VATable service on the end of that journey, um, i.e. an MPS solution. And, but as you said, you know, when when the MPS solution is managed as a as a as a as a as you know as a collective pool mm -hmm. for for all of the investors that are put into it, so I I, I think that we still don't have, as you you alluded to, we don't have a ruling, um, you know, one way or the other for, from the HMRC on this. There is uh, you know there's an indication that something is coming down the the pike maybe whenever, when they get around to it. Um, um, but, but unless of course you pay thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds to the four, you know, the, the, the top four um, accountancy firm and you tell them to, to help you, um, you know, get an individual ruling um, you know, from the HMRC, which is what I, I believe that Titan's done. So, so, you know, clearly vast majority of MPS um, providers now have removed that. The way we've dealt with this um, right from the start is we've always quoted our price, including VAT, right? And so the onus is on us to pay the VAT from, from the revenue. We haven't, at least in terms of the disclosure, we haven't disclosed the, the VAT as something that is layer, layered on, um, you know, as an additional uh, cost to, to, to the client. And I think that that served us pretty well. We're, we're not having to go to anyone to declare, you know, sure. VAT is being removed or whatever. But, you know, I guess it's good news, at least the way that it's been done by the industry to say, well, hey, you used to pay 36 basis points. It's now 30. Or in your case, um, you know, you used to pay 18 basis points, now 15. It, 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 yeah, but kind of like put that aside. I think what it's more useful for is it creates a very clear delineation between MPS and discretionary portfolio service. Yeah. Because if you are managing a client's portfolio in a bespoke manner, well, you can't legitimately claim that this is a pooled investment vehicle. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think what it's really useful for is it creates a very clear delineation between this is we are managing your money at scale on in on, on an industrial process versus we're managing your portfolio on an individual bespoke basis and be under no illusion an mps is not a individual bespoke portfolio it's at scale 
industrialized investment management. That's incredible. So, so this has really been a useful conversation. I still have a few things that I want to dig into with you, but I don't think we've, we, we have in, in, enough time. So I'm going to run through uh, a few of them very quickly. Um, actually, this one, I, I wouldn't let this go. So, so again, still on this subject of discretionary MPS, I have criticized them for the, the lack of transparency in terms of the performance comparison, uh, I know FE tried to do something in this space, in my view, woefully, terribly, my word, not yours. Uh, but I heard that AJ Bell was developing a piece of kit that would let us compare MPS performance in some shape or form, or, or am I wrong? Is that true? No, that, that, that's a work in progress. Okay. Um, you're, you're right. So the only... I'll go, go up a level if you don't mind. Sure. In the UK, there's around 20 odd billion invested in MPS. So multi-asset solutions in the UK, there's about 20, the, that market's about 20 billion in size. You think? I thought it's more than that, but carry on, carry on. No, no I mean, because you know, let's face it, Tatna, the market leader, and they've got 7 billion. Bruin Dolphin, number two, five. Vestra and FE are in the threes to four, and then it tails off pretty rapidly after that. Well, well, you're not counting kilters, um, i.e. old mucho with their own, you know, MPS um, proposition and maybe standard life wealth. But hey, you you carry on. Okay, so it, it's I, I see where, where your numbers coming from from the independently wrong yeah. guys. Okay. Oh, okay. So oh, maybe give it a bit more credence and let's say it's thirty billion. Okay, so that's in MPS solutions in the UK. We'll we'll inflate the figure and call it thirty billion, mm. but it really doesn't matter because what I'm going to compare it to is the size of the multi-asset funds industry in the UK, <laughs> which is two hundred billion of assets. Yes. Yeah. And yet. If for an advised client, taking an MPS versus taking a fund confers two advantages. It removes the double cost for custody because when you buy a fund, part of the fund cost includes custody charges. Mm -hmm. on, but you're putting that fund on a platform, so you've already paid for custody. Mm. So you pay for custody twice once you put a fund on a platform. So you can remove a layer of cost, a small layer, but a layer nonetheless. And haven't we been talking for the last 10 years, and back to your point, Abraham, about, about tech solutions, haven't all asset managers been talking for the last 10 years about, wouldn't it be great if you could look through the funds and see what the underlying investments were? Yeah. That, that's, pretty, that's an MPS. The underlying constituents of a model portfolio service, you can see on your platform without any additional technology required. Yeah, yeah. And so I, or our belief is the growth in the, in the multi-asset solutions industry ought to be more in the MPS world versus the multi-asset funds world. However, and this is the thing that's holding multi, sorry, holding MPS back. Now, if I want to compare, you know, you've mentioned some funds yourself today. If I want to compare how our fund compares against Vanguard Life Strategy and Standard Life Easy. Portfolio. I've done that in 30 seconds on Morningstar or FE or whatever software package you're using. 
if I want to compare my MPS versus Boom and Dolphins and Estras and, and, and the Tattens of this world, geez, I mean, get yourself, get yourself a, a, a darkened room. Like a needle in your eye. <laughs> yeah, get yourself a darkened room and, and be prepared to lie to those people that you're a financial advisor. If you if you want to get that performance, so you know we put a, a, a note out about eighteen months ago. It's about town. We call it the veil of opacity. The MPS world, if it wants to compete on a like for like basis with multi asset funds, needs to lift that veil of opacity. The closest thing we've got in the industry is FE Transmission, but their license model. Yeah, it's so terrible. It's I am saying it, right? You're not the one who's saying it. Uh, it's terrible, terrible idea. But I, I'll leave that discussion for another day. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no. So I'll, I'll let you fight that one. <laughs> um, but, but the license model, we think, has its flaws. I'll be slightly more diplomatic than you. And so what we'd like to do is gather the MPS providers together as a collective collect all of their investment portfolios, make them freely available, and then making their portfolios freely available because it's it's produced upfront with no, think of it a bit like blockchain. Once, once it's out there, you can't go back and change the history. Yeah, yeah. Once it's out there, kind of we can calculate the investment performance and make that again freely available to all financial advisors. So that, that's a project I've been leading at AJ Bell for, for a while now. And we're hoping to make an announcement on that shortly. All right. I look forward to the announcement. Really do. I, I, if, if I'm being, um, you know, the, the, um, the, what do you call me? The pessimist um, th that I am sometimes, I don't think you'll see a light of day because you are still like everybody else in the industry. You're relying on the, on the DFMs themselves to make, their data available and i am say i am thinking it's so bad they don't want to but hey i hope well, i am wrong. So, so, so i'll tell you i'll tell you what i think the solution to that is a if you can get critical mass with enough people willing to put it on there's almost like a, a badge of dishonor by not being on that platform. right right you know, we what? shame them we shame yeah, it's, them it's, 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 <laughs> what are you trying to hide by not being on it no that's that's fascinating stuff Kevin, this has really been, uh, you know, it's really been a great conversation, digging really deep into, um, into the bottomless pit that is, <laughs> that is discretionary MPS um, services. Uh, so, so thank you very, very much for your time, for your wisdom, and yeah, for the good work that you, you do in the industry. Thank you very much. Abe, it's always a pleasure. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on money. Until next time, 
thank you and goodbye.